Okay, uh, so welcome to day two of the conference. Um, sorry for the slight delayed start. Um, after what was, I think, an amazing meal at uh, the Museum of Science and Industry yesterday, I think we're all feeling slightly sluggish, including apparently PowerPoint. Uh, so we were a little slow in getting uh, set up. Uh, so uh, introductions, I'm uh, Darren Dancy. I am uh, the head of school over at Manchester Metropolitan uh, University for Computing and Mathematics. And I'm the theme for lead um, for the IOC, which is widening participation if you're in education or diversity and inclusion if you're more from the industry side. Um, and I think something that's come through throughout uh, the day yesterday was that uh, around the diversity and inclusion piece. There has been some success stories around, for example, the degree apprenticeships, which have seemed to have addressed those issues. But I think there is a, a clear need for us to do more. And one of those areas particularly is the gender imbalance. And that is uh, going to be really the focus of this morning's session. So we've got three um, amazing speakers. And then we will go into a panel session at the end where there will be an opportunity to, to ask questions. So I would request that, um, that you um, save your questions for, for the end, for, for the panel session. Okay, so we have um, Edmund Robinson from uh, Queen Mary, who will be presenting on uh, some of the data that we have around diversity um, in general uh, in computer science and then leading us into the, the, the gender piece. Then we have, um, I'm very pleased that uh, Katie Gallagher from uh, Manchester Digital will be talking about um, the Digital Her campaign. And then we have Gillian Arnold, uh, who is a member of the IOC Diversity and Inclusion Board, who will be talking about some of the barriers. Okay, so let's uh, get this, uh, this session started. If I could invite Edmunds to the lectern. Okay. Uh Thank you, Darren. As Darren said, my name's Edmund Robinson. I'm a professor at Queen Mary. I'm also vice chair of the Council of Professors and Heads of Computing, and I'm the Queen Mary lead for the, currently the Queen Mary lead for the IOC. Um, and I wanted to show you um, some of the data that we have about demographics of computer science. In, specifically in universities, I think other people will be talking about, um, about industry. So I'm going to be talking in broadly in two areas. I'll be talking about how computer science is spread across different universities. And um, I'd quite like you to hear that in a sort of dog whistle way. Um, we'll be talking about different universities and that reflects, um, I think, different levels of, um, of, of kind of, I was going to say social disability, but um, social inequality. And then I'll be talking about diversity and I'll be leading with ethnicity and following on with gender. Um, okay, all of the information um, I'm going to show you today, I think you could have got me from for yourself from the lovely folks at HESA. Um, either from directly from, some of it directly from their website, but rather more um, from the Heidi Plus tool, which um, the university academics amongst you will have access to if you sweet talk and charm your university administrations into giving it you. Um, so um, Heidi Plus gives a 
kind of tableau server that contains an enormous amount of information. And here's a picture of one of the um, one of the sheets from that. This is um, this is disability. It's just so that you can see kind of the levels of information, what how you can drill down into it. So disability or ethnicity and then by providers, provider groups, subjects, age, domicile, you name it. Um, and then you get rounded figures by universities and totals at the bottom. So here you can see the only thing I think you really need to see on this slide is that I've tactfully blocked out the individual university figures. And um, there's all this rather low figures for national totals of, of regional totals of diversity information, sorry, the of disability information. Um, one of the reasons I won't be talking about disability information is that it is, it's quite underreported and the, the data isn't, I don't think, reliable. Okay, so I'm going to start by talking to you about um, spread across universities and helpfully that tool will give you the different, un different university groups. So I've picked different university groups. Um, I guess everybody has um, heard of the Russell Group. It contains 24 research intensive universities. But then there's the University Alliance, um, which describes itself as universities engaged in building the workforce of tomorrow. And those are by and large, so Russell Group universities are the large research intensive um, civics and so forth. Um, University Alliance is institutions like long-standing polytechnics. So for example, Manchester Met is a member of the University Alliance, um, as is the Open University, but I've removed the Open University from the figures because they're, they're kind of quite an anomaly. Um, and then there's the Million Plus, so they describe themselves as the Association for Modern Universities. They're largely, um, so they're, they're largely former polytechnics. Um, not that they're, so. Um, and then there are quite a lot of universities that are not in any of these, and in particular there are a lot of Russell Group, like universities that are not in the Russell Group. I mean, institutions that might be in the Russell Group, but for some reason are unwilling to pay, pay the fees. And those would include things like the University of East Anglia and Surrey. Um, these are the figures for um, full-time um, students in computer science as of 2016-17. Um, and in neighboring subjects, so I've taken the neighboring subjects of physics, maths, engineering, computer science, and these are the full-time person equivalent in Russell Group, University Alliance, million plus, and then the total, total nationally. Um, and let me just get to the Next slide. Um, sorry, what you can see from this is that almost half of the physical sciences students are in the Russell group. Over half of the math students are in the Russell group. 
Um, and 40% of the engineering students are in the Russell group, whereas 13 over 69, 13 out of 70 of the computer science students are in the Russell group. So 50% of physics students are in the Russell group, 57% of maths, 40% of engineering. So the consequence I want to drive home for you is that if somebody thinks of a typical physics, maths, or engineering student, then the odds are that they are thinking of somebody who's come from a Russell Group university or a similar institution. Um, the Surreys, Baths. Whereas 19% of computer science students are at Russell Group universities. So if you think of a typical computer science student, they are actually not at a Russell Group institution. Um, and that matters because there is um, a strong correlation between which your level of social advantage and what kind of university you might end up at. So, broadly speaking, I want you to think that Russell Group universities have a reputation for being packed with largely more not universally, but more socially advantaged students, whereas the more socially disadvantaged students will tend to end up in um, places like um, places like the, the groups like the Million Plus and the University Alliance. So um, taking so if Sue would not mind my taking your can I take your name in vain? So um, Sue went to the University of Greenwich, which is University Alliance. Sorry, so, so, um, so that's, that's kind of fairly typical. Okay, um, second point is that if you look inside the Russell Group, um, computer science is actually a fairly small, unimportant subject. Um, there are 13,000 computer science students as compared with 18,000 math students or 40,000 engineers. And I kind of want to carry on drilling into this a little bit. So I've given you this spreadsheet, but it's, it's sort of hard to read. There are all these numbers and it's hard to compare. And in particular, you might ask, is that number kind of bigger or smaller than I would expect? And one way of looking at that would be to say, okay, well, the probability of a million plus student is, taking computer science is so much, 6.7%. Let's compare that with the probability of a random student taking computer science, just pick a student at random, what's the odds of them taking computer science? That's 4.8%. So let's compare those numbers, and the obvious way to do it is by dividing them. So we'll consider a form of something which is called a likelihood ratio, and that gives the factor by which million-plus students preferentially choose computer science, which is 1.43. So that number is bigger than one, which means these students tend to choose more computer science than the average student. 
and it's quite a lot bigger than one. Um, so that's telling us that um, computer science is quite important in the million plus sector, it's not so important in, in, the, in the Russell Group sector, and rather handily, that definition is actually symmetric. Gosh. Okay, so I'm really going to have to go much faster if I'm going to cover anything. So what you can see here are the likelihood ratios for things, and you will notice this pattern. Gold is stuff which is bigger than one. Red is stuff which is less than one. So few students, lots of students. And you can see that computer science absolutely stands out. Okay, enough of that. Um, now, um, let's deal with the, um, move on to ethnicity. This is a chart of similar stuff for ethnicities. Um, so this, these again are the, the standard groupings. And you'll notice that, so these are likelihood ratios for students picking computer science of different ethnicities, and you'll notice that the Asian, that's Asian Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Chinese, other Asian background, are all quite large. That means these students are actually preferentially taking computer science. Whereas the white um, is slightly small, that's almost inevitable given, given the size of the grouping and that these groups are tending to choose computer science. The outlier is this group of black students, so the black or black British Caribbean. Um, and what they are doing um, is they're primarily taking mass communications, business, and law. Um, okay. Um, computer science does reasonably well amongst the STEM subjects for them, but they're primarily not taking STEM subjects. Okay, and now to the big topic, um, gender, the elephant in the room. Um, figures say that 15% of UK CS undergraduates are women. It's actually worse than that. It's worse than it looks at first sight because 50%, there are more women than men. 56% of all UK undergraduates are women. And that means that that's the current gender balance. And if we want to get it so that it reflects the gender balance in universities nationally, that's what we have to do. Um, in other words, we've got to practically double the size of the computer science cohort and for all of our new students to be women. Um, that's a really tough ask. Um, so that's why people are banging on about gender being the diversity, the really serious diversity issue. It's by far the most serious diversity issue for us, both by severity of underrepresentation and by size of the underrepresented population. Um, there are similar issues in Europe and the US. Um, but I'm just going to show you um, some quick figures that I'm not going to have time to talk about properly. Um, but 
if we look at the percentage of each racial grouping um, that we get in computer science, so we get 10% um, of black British Caribbean men are taking computer science, and then look at the ratio. So this is the likelihood that a woman from university, woman will be uh, choosing computer science as, sorry, a man will be choosing computer science as compared with men. You'll see that there is a similar pattern here. The Asian groups are actually that we have more women, we have, we have more women peaking with, um, let's see, the Asian Indian, where there are only 3.9 men for each woman. Well, hey! And um, worst with things like the whites, where there are 9.3. Okay. Um, now, that's a UK problem, but I just wanted to close by showing you a picture that shows it is not a worldwide problem. It is really not a worldwide problem. Here is a picture of our graduation photo in China. It's helpfully ranked with the women in front of the men. And that's how many women there are. It's about half. So it's our problem, not a fundamental one. Thank you. Thank you, Edmund. So I think that was very useful to set the context of, of, the, of the issue. Um, as a consortium uh, that includes uh, over 30 universities, you would expect us to, to want to look at that data and use that data to try to, um, to, try to uh, uh, prioritize how we're going to address the issue. However, we do absolutely need to uh, get on and actually do some activities to try to ad address this issue. And that neatly leads me to uh, Katie Gallagher from Manchester Digital, who I uh, would like to invite to the lectern to tell us more about her, her, uh, her program called Digital Her. Thank you, Darren. Uh, and thank you very much for inviting me to talk to you about one of our new initiatives called Digital Her. Um, so I'm the Managing Director of Manchester Digital uh, and we are the digital and tech trade body for Greater Manchester. I'm not going to list all the things that we do because no one's here for that. Um, but things that are important to know are we're fairly sizeable, we have over 500 businesses in our membership, uh, every size, shape and vertical of technology you can think of. And everything we do, every project we conceive and every initiative we deliver uh, is driven by our member demand. Um, it's absolutely no surprise, and I probably need to caveat this presentation with, there is no new news here. Everything I'm going to say you've heard a million times. Um, and um, it's, it's just about having a job to do. Um, so talent and skills is obviously a massive problem for our industry across the board. That's before we even start looking and segmenting it into to gender and the amount of women um, that are in the pipeline for our members to employ. But Manchester Digital has a very, very clear policy line around talent and skills. And we believe that unless industry and education are aligned, we cannot deliver uh, the level of technical education that we need to. And every company that joins Manchester Digital buys into the fact that they don't just believe that as a, as a fact. 
they have to actively get involved and they have to help us solve some of those problems facing our industry. Um, there are lots of initiatives that are aimed at tackling gender diversity in tech. Um, some of them, you know, tackling different parts of it, whether it's returning. We're tackling the pipeline issue. Uh, we survey our members every year uh, and we ask them specifically around gender diversity. And even though there are lots and lots of things happening and we've been talking about it and we've articulated and quantified the problem, the dial isn't shifting. There is still a lot more to do. And so based on that and based on the fact that our members know it's not just about being seen to do the right thing, it's about improving their bottom line and designing products and services that everybody can use. And you can't do that if you're not informed by everybody that's, if you don't have the right mix of skills and people that are building them. So we decided to create a programme called Digital Her. Um, <clears throat> I think, so when we, when we started, when we started Digital Her, um, I believed foolishly um, that actually we would be surprised by how many girls were interested in tech. At the moment, we're focusing on girls who are thinking about their GCSE options. Uh, but I'm actually delighted to announce that the IOC have very uh, kindly partnered with us. Uh, and it's going to be a really, really helpful and useful partnership to allow us to expand our programme to colleges across Greater Manchester uh, and beyond into the north. Um, and that will help us improve the pipeline of girls at FE opting to stay in tech education or, and follow apprenticeship or degree routes. So thank you very much, IOC. Um, but yeah, so I was, I was really, really surprised when we, about the lack of, um, the lack of understanding and the image problem that tech still really, really has at that GCSE level, uh, to the point where, uh, when we interviewed girls at the beginning of a programme, you know, 90% of them couldn't name one female in tech, but they could quite comfortably name three men. So, you know, there's some, there's some real problems there to solve. So anyway, our, the aims of our programme are, to kind of inspire young women to think about taking a career in tech and to show them that there is a place for them in our industry. Uh, but we also realise that it's not just girls that need that kind of intervention, it's parents and teachers, so there has to be a holistic approach to tackling this problem and we need to take everybody with us on that journey. Um, so how do we do this? So this is kind of the, the range of things we do that we think tackle each of the points of that problem. So we're doing roadshows at the moment, which means that we get out to all the boroughs of Greater Manchester. I've never actually been to Rochdale, but this year I'm going and I'm going to make 100 women uh, choose tech as their career pathway. So uh, we're going out to all the boroughs of Greater Manchester. We will be, um, we're, we're working with uh, computer science teachers and careers advisors across GM. Uh, whether that's delivering um, workshops to them or connecting them to our companies so they can actually go and do some work shadowing and see what, what it's actually like working in a tech company because uh, those staff can become disconnected from the industry quite quickly. Um, we have, we'll have an online resource, so we have lots of videos of girls, young women talking about what they do in their companies. Um, at the moment, we have 100 role models, but that's rising very, very rapidly. There's a huge amount of goodwill in the industry to support this work. Um, and when we look at role models, we're not just looking at coders. We're encouraging people to think about careers in UX. We're encouraging project management. 
uh, we're looking at the full complement of job roles that sit around that, that digital and technology space. Um, we're getting companies to ring fence work placements uh, and work experience for girls. We originally set out, we thought we might get five placements in the first year. We've already blown through that and I think we're on course for 15 so far. Uh, and we'll keep building that year on year. And these girls are going to really, really great places. So um, they're going into uh, Salford Royal, into the digital team in a hospital and understanding, you know, that, that actually nursing and those traditional female jobs aren't just for them. There's actually people, the CIO of um, Salford Royal is, is a woman. So it's great for them to go and see that. Um, we're also going to run a, a PR campaign that is solely targeted at teachers and parents, uh, some of it to try and remove some of that unconscious bias, because quite often by the time girls are old enough, their teachers and parents have already dissuaded them from the fact that there's a career in tech for them. Um, and so, I mean, none of this is rocket science, and as I say, none of it is new, is new news. It just needed us to roll our sleeves up, get involved, and try and change uh, some views of young people and... Um, Here's a, just a really, a really quick slide about some of the... Come, that hasn't come... It's, it's come up on my screen, but it hasn't come up on yours. Um, there are more companies in BJSS and Barclays involved in this. There's about, there's about 30 or 40 so far. Um, but never mind, we'll, we'll move on. Um, I think uh, one of the things always... Oh, no, they're, they're coming, they're happening. Stand here awkwardly for, for a bit. Um, I think one of, one of the things that always really, really makes me laugh is as soon as the girls meet the role models when we do the road shows and they get a chance to chat to them about their jobs, the second question, what do you do, how much do you get paid, they are the two first questions every time. And I admire that because women aren't good enough at asking for pay rises. So if we can teach them early that talking about money is okay, um, then I think that's an added bonus. Um, that is just some of the, the girls at the day, on the day, and it's just kind of, it's all, it's all really good fun for them. They, uh, they've been doing code-breaking workshops at GCHQ. Um, they build, they've built a checkout with AutoTrader. Uh, they've made apps and emoji-based games with BJSS, so they're doing really, really fun things. Um, and I will just finish with, um, this is just the stats from uh, before and after. Um, which shows that we are making a difference. There's still a lot of maybes. There's still a lot of girls who think they have to be accountants and lawyers. Um, but hopefully, every borough we visit, we're making a bit of a difference. Uh, and hopefully, we'll keep on going for a few years and we will see a difference uh, to the amount of women entering our industry. Thank you very much. Thank you, Katie. And I think that uh, was an excellent demonstration of what you know, we can actually do now. We can actually get out there and make a difference now. Um, so in the uh, final uh, set of, um, of speakers, I would like to invite uh, Gillian Arnold uh, to, to the lecture uh, to talk a little bit about um, what are the, the barriers. So we've talked about the data. Um, and we talked about what we can do, but we, we also need to try to understand what are the barriers, what is it that is actually stopping uh, more, um, more women in coming into this, into this sector. So. I love these. They're brilliant, these. They're a perfect example of why we need more women in our industry. When Lecky gave me this this morning, he said, well, I'll tuck it behind your neck here. 
and he was being very supportive. And if he tucked it behind my neck, my dress would have gone like that. Because they arrive with a clip on the back and they tell you that the clip is to go on your belt. Lecky didn't, he didn't. But for lots of women, that just doesn't work, does it? I've had these things tucked down the back of my tights. It's really not appropriate. Now, if there'd been a woman on the team designing this thing, she might have said, it's not going to work if you haven't got a belt. And so it's really important that we fix this stuff. Where did the clicker go? Okay. Uh, ah. Do we still think a glass ceiling exists in our industry? Pretty much. I didn't tell Lecky I've actually found that I've got a pocket in this dress. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely the glass ceiling exists. And I think um, we've talked about attracting women into the industry, but we need to talk about what we do, uh, both around attraction, but, but also around retention and eliminating some of the barriers that we've got to keeping our women once we get them in here. Um, and, and this image is, uh, this is uh, Google images from two years ago. And it's all fellas. This is CEO in the UK. And it's all fellas. And if you do CIO or CTO, it's all fellas. And so when women look up, they kind of go, no, you know, there's no place for me in this industry. And so, and, and we saw Katie's uh, Manchester figures, but the UK workforce for women in tech remains at 17%, has been for so many years. And yet we're a large percentage of the workforce. We've snuck up one point, but actually it wasn't one point, it was a part of a point on the number of IT directors. Um, we were at 10%, but it's not surprising we don't stay because we don't earn as much. And I'll show you some stats in a second. Um, and there's some really weird stuff going on. This is, this is America. But actually, this happens here. So 58% of Fortune 500 chief execs are six foot tall or higher, but only 14%-ish of the population are that tall. How did we decide that tall is leader-shaped? And, you know, for women who are, on average, five foot four, we haven't got a chance, have we? And we haven't got a chance because... Even though we're five foot eight in some cases, five foot eight, they might imagine that we're five foot four, and there's plenty of research that says that they do imagine we're five foot four, even though we come in really tall. Um, and if you're a black woman or a woman of colour, then you've got a double whammy, because not only will you be getting the, oh, well, she's too short to be a leader nonsense, but you'll also be getting oh, but she's black and therefore, and the unconscious bias stuff goes, and therefore she's not as bright as the rest. So this is not me saying this, this is stats that suggest that. Um, and if you'd like all of my references afterwards, I'll tell you where they come from. We do make progress. We do make progress in the industry. As you can see, since 2005, this black, uh, sorry, this 
this um, blue bit at the top with the black writing, it does get bigger. This is the number of women employed, but it stays consistently at around about the 16, 17%. And in fact, in the year 2000, we had around about 20%, but all the women left. They got fed up. Not surprising too. They got fed up because of things like this. This is salaries. So through IT directors, specialist managers, project managers, and the red, red marks there on the red percentages are the difference in salary. Of course they got fed up. You know, if you're going to get paid 27% less than your male peers, then you are going to walk, aren't you? In 1995, this is how long this has been going on. The US government commissioned a survey. It was called the Glass Ceiling Commission. And they said, well, there are three problems here. One of the problems is governmental. One is internal and structural to the businesses that are working on it. And one is societal. So I'm going to pick out, because we've covered uh, some of this, I'm going to pick out unconscious bias. I'm going to pick out a bit on corporate culture and a little bit on recruitment practice to say that these are some of the barriers that we can look at. So unconscious bias, unintentional, automatic people preferences which may lead us to favour some people over others and which bypass our self-awareness. So I have a question for you. Who in the UK are the most stupid people by accent? Brummies, absolutely. Brummies, and there's another one. Scousers. So how is it that collectively we believe this? How did we come to collectively believe that Brummies and Scousers are thick? Go on. So we could be smart. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a good point. Um, uh, but not right. <laughs> Why did we believe that? So it's the comedians, isn't it? When the comedians want to tell you that somebody's not all that bright, they put on an accent. And the, the accents they'll typically use are the Brummy accent or the Liverpudlian accent. So you get two candidates in for admission and they're both coming to you for um, computer science class. And one of them shakes your hand and perfectly received pronunciation. And the other one shakes your hand and she's got a brummy accent. And she gets a tiny little, tiny little unknown to you black mark against her for not being as bright as anyone else. We do this. We absolutely do do this. There are lots of other biases made up of our background, our sexual orientation, the school we went to, the radio station that we listened to. All of these things can drive the biases that will stop us choosing somebody at interview, for admissions, for a job, and then will possibly make us rate them not so well when it comes to annual assessment. This piece of research gets done every year by loads of recruitment companies. They do it because it's good business to do it. They, in this case, it was Hayes in Australia, they take a CV, they change the name on the CV so that it says Simon Smith or Susan Smith, 
And then they give it to a batch of equal men and women hiring managers, and they say, would you hire? Would you recruit? And they give them a set of criteria, in this case, 20 criteria. And what happened with this one was that the respondents who hire more than 20 people a year were more likely to interview Simon over Susan. And um, in fact, it was extremely probable that Simon would get an interview, but Susan wouldn't. And what's really shocking is female respondents said that Susan matched 14 out of the 20 attributes really, really well, but Simon only matched six. And the male attributes said Simon matched 14 out of the 20 attributes really well, but Susan only matched six. This is hiring in your own image. We do this. It's because, you know, we are a gender. If unconscious bias is working just because we are a gender, then it's everywhere. But despite this, despite this, both genders said that Simon was more intelligent than Susan, more likely to be a leader. This is identical CV data. This is what you are working with when you get to admissions or when you get to recruiting somebody. Oh, too much. One of the things that I used to, I used to work for IBM, I worked for them for 20 odd years. And when I finished, I was still furious. I was furious. I'd go down the tube and I'd see these people, these men, and they'd walk around and I'd be furious with them. I was so cross with them and I didn't know why. And it's taken me years to understand why. And I think it was micro inequities. So when people talk about unconscious bias, they talk about lots of different concepts around it. And one of them, which gets talked about a lot with unconscious bias, is micro inequities. And this fits into the culture that I said I would talk about. So subtle, unconscious messages that devalue and discourage. Thank you. And they, they really, they leave you feeling so jaded, so damaged. And I think this is why I was so furious and why I would see these men in the tube and hate them. Because I'd say to myself, but I didn't know this, they are the people who got to you. They are the ones who hurt you. And hurting me was, was kind of simple. So what they would do is maybe they'd be talking to me, but they'd be looking at their phone and they would do it repeatedly. Or they would, they would um, refuse to meet my eye. Or in one case, only one, they would not talk to me but talk to my chest consistently. For two years, this man talked here. Like, look, I'm here, Peter, I'm here. So, you know, these things get to you. They get to you so much. Having your ideas in a meeting completely unheard. And then some chap saying, oh, I've got a great idea. And you're going, hang on, I said that. I said that two minutes ago. And nobody hears it. All of this gets to you. And in the end, you're so furious. You go, I'm going to walk. I can't work here. The culture's toxic. It's really important that we fix these barriers by work around culture. Uh, there's a woman called Karen Petrie up in Aberdeen, isn't she? And Karen... <laughs> produced, and you can find this on Wikipedia, um, the Petri multiplier. And she said, if you're a small number, 
these women in this circle and everybody gets to do these micro inequities and everybody does them but if you're a small number on a daily basis you'll be receiving more of them than the rest it's worth going and reading about and what that means is the weight of this pain of being disregarded and unheard and it just has us walk it has us leave and we have to fix this cultural problem and then there's recruitment practice. So companies don't know at the moment that there was a 2011 amendment to the 2010 Equality Act, which says, in the event that you have two perfect candidates, you've had your set of criteria, you are going to recruit one or the other, and one's a male and one's a female. So long as you have said, we are going to have a positive action campaign to bring more women into our organisation, at that point, with these two equal candidates, you can say, okay, I'll take the woman. So it's not positive discrimination, it's positive action. And you are allowed to do this. We need to tell companies that they can take this action. The other thing that needs to happen is we need to take some risks. Because women have this weight of um, micro inequities or, or lack of personal belief, and I'll come to that in a second, we need to take some risks because they're probably not going to be selling themselves as high as everybody else. So that, you know, the gents, they're out there loving themselves. The women are kind of only just loving themselves and consequently when you see an admission you see a CV you'll maybe not see as much as she could really tell you and therefore we have to take some risks as hiring managers and people who are taking people on if you are in a in a situation if you're an employer with recruiters you have to challenge them to be as good as you want to be around your recruitment of different protected characteristics and particularly women. You have to get right around your advertising and your job specs and your, they have to both be right. So you can advertise to women and make sure that the adverts are right. But then if you send them a job spec that kind of puts them off because they're not that confident, then that's going to follow through and put them off again. Um, send and support policies. Yeah, and, and you have to have the right policies in your organization to recruit properly. And then finally, if it's a company, then you need chief exec support. And I think Katie mentioned this. Um, you need to be constantly monitoring where you are. You need to get someone addressing unconscious bias and the stereotypes in your hiring managers. Make sure that everybody is accountable on an organisation-specific programme to bring more women in. Thank you. And that is your positive action campaign. And all you need to do is send an email and say to people, we're going to do positive action and you're on the road. I think you need to think about cultural management and cultural changing. And all of your programmes must engage with all these different facets. It can't just be, well, we'll change our advertising and that's going to fix it all. It isn't. It needs to be everything included in this. Ah, these just make me so sad. 
This is why we need to take risks. If women don't believe in themselves, then we need to be the ones taking the risks around. Yeah, come in. We can see that you've got potential. I don't ever want to pathologise a woman, but it's really important that it's a two-way affair and that whilst they're kind of putting themselves up for the job, which has taken a lot of guts, that we are taking the risk to take them on. And then the world's your oyster, really. Okay, I'm done. I finished early. Thank you. Thank you. So I think um, that was, again, a really useful um, aspect of, of uh, uh, together trying to address, address the issues. So what we'd like to do now is move into a, a panel session. Um, and we are joined, in addition to the uh, three speakers, we're also joined by Debbie and Nadia, and I would like to ask them to introduce themselves. So, Debbie? Hi, I'm Debbie Forster. I'm the CEO of the Tech Talent Charter. So the Tech Talent Charter is a not-for-profit that's been going since 2017. We bring together organizations, employers, recruiters, anyone who really wants to move the dial on diversity in tech, particularly gender. We now have, we started in 2017 with 17 signatories. We just passed the 300 mark. And the, the premise that we have is that Everyone knows that the pipeline, the whole pipeline from early inspiration all the way up to women and boards is utterly, utterly broken and it's broken for everyone. But we also know if you look across the work in the last 10 years, all the pieces of the puzzle to solve it are out there. So these are employers, recruiters, HE, government, not-for-profits coming together to share what works on attraction, recruitment, retention, retraining, getting women into boards. It's a focus on the practical. We connect the dots. We don't reinvent the wheel. We've worked great partners like Manchester Digital, GCHQ, um, Jacqueline and Tech UK were one of our very first signatories. And so why we like working with the IOC is again this focus on solutions. It's so broken that working together, no one initiative, program, employer can solve it all by themselves. So I think I do get, and having spent years of working with the depressing how it doesn't work, we have a growing number of employers who do get it and universities who do get it and they're getting ahead. It's interesting in our annual report, our employers looking through the same stats came out 9% better. Now it still isn't great, it's not 50-50 in terms of the gender breakdown, but they are getting ahead. So if you're hearing all of this and it feels daunting and impossible, it is a big problem, but you're not having to solve it alone. You don't have to reinvent the wheel, and that's really what the Tech Talent Charter does. Thank you. I think there's some uh, absolutely excellent points about the fact that we do need to, to work together. Uh, Nadia? Hi, I'm Nadia Johnson. I'm a final year software degree apprentice working at Talis UK. I work specifically in the maritime mission systems on sonar technology. But alongside of that as well, um, I've helped co-found a STEM initiative campaign, um, which kind of targets engineering and technology, uh, creating YouTube videos and project packs to, um, as a free engineering resource for schools, parents to do in summer. Um, and along with that, we're hoping to run workshops um, to kind of, well, building on what Katie said before, um, influence parents, because I know, for me, my parents were a big aspect of why I got into engineering um, at the start. 
Um, my dad's an engineer, my uncle's an engineer. Um, my cousin's a computer scientist. Um, so that was, for me, was kind of where I got my inspiration from going forward. Um, and I think a big thing for me recently, well, it was actually last summer when my little sister was actually picking her options um, for GCSEs. She turned to me and was like, oh, I've seen all the stuff that you've done. Uh, I want to do computer science. And that, for me, has been something that's been absolutely incredible. I can inspire something in my own family, never mind the other people. And Katie said, uh, building on the other things um, like Katie and both, uh, both of you have said, really, is these role models need to be there, no matter gender, ethnicity. Mm. You need role models to look up to, whether you've got somebody in your family, um, whether it's just people that are inspired um, or inspiring kind of thing. That's kind of what we're working towards and influencing with this campaign going forward. We've got a lot of buying as well. It's been really good. Uh, so Manchester Science Museum has been heavily involved, Stockport Council, um, Talis has actually paid for our um, trademark for it, which unfortunately we haven't quite got through because it's going through the um, all the loopholes at the moment. So I can't quite say what the name is, but over the next month, um, I should be able to tell you all, which would be absolutely fantastic. Um, so that's been brilliant, brilliant so far. And I think the next step for us um, is obviously branding it a lot better than um, push it forward. And getting the UK reach which has been quite good um, we recently got a shout out in Parliament last well two weeks ago and we got invited down last week as well as part of the uh, campaign initiative so it's going quite well. Fantastic. Brilliant thank you. So at this point uh, I'd like to open it up to the audience um, question at first hand up there was at the back in the middle by the camera is there a mic coming your way? days at a university, looking to lots of different engineering aspects and it really changed uh, how I felt about um, going into engineering, going into computing. And we've got a lot of initiatives that we've had over the years that do change individuals' lives, but how do we collaborate better to ensure that we can change society rather than just changing pockets of individuals? And, and that we really make this something that does get more of our 14, 15 year old girls to see this as a first choice. Okay. I don't know the answer to this either. <laughs> Can I? Deb, Debbie, could I ask you to? I think, and I'll do a shout out for an, another person that's on the IOC diversity board. We have a partner charter, which is Tech She Can. And their, their mantra is the same. How can we connect up all of the employers, all of the initiatives to try signposting? So one of the things that the Tech Talent Charter does is that mapping piece. Um, what I want to do is to keep us as a charter as tiny as possible and then show everything that's going on in the space so that at the moment we've mapped over 300 initiatives across the pipeline so companies can search. So there's, there's no easy answer and I think particularly, I'm, my original background is in education. We, it can't just be one experience, can it? It's not like a vaccination, we can't stem a girl and then she stemmed for life. I think it's about trying to connect the things on what can they do with the opportunity you're doing, then do develop her, a bit of tech she can, think about teen tech. There's dozens of initiatives there. It's working with the teachers to help them understand what's out there, 
the parents to understand that it's a good thing, and then try to get employers to plug in together rather than inventing yet another thing. So I think it's beginning. Ten years ago, I'd have pulled my hair out and said, dear God, I have no idea how. But I, I do think that the dots are getting connected. Okay. Uh, just because of time, I think we'll move on to the next question. Um, can maybe the lady in front of the camera there? Um, so lots of young women are using tech from the second they wake up to, in lots of cases, the second they go to sleep. Yet we're not genuinely talking to young women about this and asking them how do they want to shape the future. Resources, programs, videos, content, they need to be co-created with young people and it needs to be much more youth-led because at the moment it feels like we're not doing much to include young women in leading the conversation, we're talking at them. And my question to you is really, what are we doing to put them at the centre rather than just telling them what they should be interested in or they should be doing? How can we actually say to them, you know, how do you want to shape the future? How do you want to work, you know, in digital in whatever field that is, rather than being condescending or patronising? Because young women are experts of their own lives. Okay. Uh, Nadia, would you be able to speak yeah, to that? Yeah, sure. Um, I think, like I said, I'm quite a young person in STEM. I'm 23 at the moment, kind of started um, on a degree apprenticeship when I was uh, 19, 20. Um, I think for me... A big thing is role models. I think if something's shown to you and you think, well, oh, I could be like that, I think that's rather than being told about it, it's kind of showing the exciting side of the different, like, well, digital technologies, um, engineering, and things like that. It's like you said, it's not necessarily dictating that you should be doing this, it's more giving them the opportunities and say, well, there's people out there doing these kinds of things. And I don't think many people, especially women, we don't tend to talk about what we do and what we're good at. Um, I found that in a lot of the stuff that we've... Well, I've, I've been trying to get people to do interviews and videos. And um, I find it quite hard to get some of the women in the office to actually go tell me what they're good at and why they're doing the roles that they're in. Um, and like you said, well, well, my little sister, it's she's, she was the one that's come to me and said, I'm doing this because... I've seen you as a role model. Um, so that for me is, is very strong. It's not necessarily dictating that you should be going into these roles. It should be more the, the kind of like the encouragement to say, well, it's with primary schools, you get taught English, you get taught maths, you get taught kind of basic like science subjects, but you'll never get taught these concepts at primary school. And I think this is where you kind of build up kind of your biggest knowledge base and you, you take in, you absorb so much at primary school that really, I think that's a massive focus going forward. Um, it's kind of aligning it with the curriculum at the primary schools. And then they can make their own choices then going forward. Um, I think that's something that was part of our campaign is to work with primary schools and primary school teachers to kind of align it with the curriculum. Because um, it is, it's, digital is fast, it's growing, it's always changing and it's hard to keep up with it. And you can't expect teachers to keep on top of it all the time. So you need ind industry standard people to go in and help them, whether it's create, creating resources um, that they can kind of run with or whether it's for the parents themselves to run with the children. And I think another aspect as well is you can't expect parents to kind of encourage the children in job roles that they don't understand themselves. Because I said parent was a big aspect for me, but that's because they're a part of that job role. So I think really it's starting at a young age and 
educating people from both a primary school and parents going forward because I think when you are that young that's when you absorb the most information that kind of makes you decide where you're going to go for the future. Okay, thank Has you. Has that answered your question? <laughs> Have we got time for one more question? Yep. Okay, so someone seems very keen to answer I have a question in the middle there. Hi, Nicola from the OFS. Um, we've just put out um, an evaluation report on degree apprenticeships. And um, one of the things we found there, they've only started in 2016, as, as you know, um, is that on some of the digital technology solutions courses, the gender balance is 40% women. Yeah. And for 20 years, we've been trying to push up the gender balance in traditional HE courses. Um, and we've got 15%, according to the, the figures that Edmund put out. Um, the independent evaluator has speculated that looking at the, the admissions for the, the people who've got high gender balance, A-level maths was one of the reasons why some of those employers had taken more women uh, they hadn't insisted on A-level maths, but the um, universities tend to, and the evaluators speculated that that might be one of the reasons why you've got a 40% take-up. I wondered if the panel had any views of their own on why that might be the case. I heard some interesting piece on this, and it's something we've seen in programmes with young people, that quite often the sort of person who might go on to a computer science degree is the person who may love the theory and the principle, and these are your, your true techies. Whereas quite often for women, it is they want to see what they can do with it. And there was a, a, some interviews coming out that were saying a lot of the women that were going for these apprenticeships were because they could see what it was doing and they could see how it led to a job. If you look at countries like China and India, where they've talked about and they've managed to move that gender divide, tech is sold to young women as a way of a great job, great money, and often things like travel. So I think the more that if we're talking apprenticeships where we can directly link as this is how I can work with this cool company and this leads to a job um, and it makes money, we'll have a lot more attraction for women. So I think that's a really key issue. So what I'd like to do is actually ask everybody on the, on the panel to, to respond to that as a way of, of finishing up. So sort of final thoughts and maybe a response to that. Okay, okay. Um, so yeah, obviously I did the degree apprenticeship myself. Um, I think a big thing for me, kind of going through now, is how employable that I am. Mm -hmm. I've got four years work experience, or getting on for four years work experience. Um, and I'll have the degree behind me as well, so the theory that I get taught at university, I can apply in a work sense. Um, it's also made it a lot easier to do the degree because I have... A pool of knowledge that I can go to if I don't necessarily understand something because we only go in one day a week so we get one day release um, so you've obviously got the lectures to ask but when I'm in work I can ask for something mm. to be applied because so, so, that's how I understand it so it's like what you said being able to see how something actually works makes it a lot more understandable um, and like you said that that for me has been like a, a big aspect and going forward as well I've managed to learn massive systems in the four years and actually have the budget because I'm part or I'm branded as an apprentice. So 
obviously we've got large sonar systems which are on kind of the astute class submarines and the next generation of submarines and stuff like that and they're not small systems so I've had the opportunity for four years to actually learn it from end to end which is what I wanted to do so it's been good. Gillian? Um, it might be useful to have a look at the Open University study that happened last year with um, India and, and what was happening yeah, yeah. what was happening in India and how um, girls are much more attracted because of their parents, etc, um, but also because of the close links with the universities and the companies. <clears throat> Um, and and they have completely different figures, so I think it's a, you know a pointer to that. And Clem Herman will be able to uh, give you information about that if you need it. Great. Um, um, sorry. Uh, maybe Edmund and Katie to finish. Okay, I'm slightly wondering whether I could actually say this, but um, one of the things that the apprentices actually have to do is go out and convince company to give them a job and it's it's not a huge surprise to me that um, that some of the young women perform better have the social skills to do that in the way that some of the young men don't um, so it and moreover I think that a lot of the a lot of the universities and a lot of the companies have felt that this is an opportunity to, as it were, push the boundaries a little bit. And I don't think that they've had to push the boundaries hard, and I don't think that they've had to compromise on quality at all. But it's, it's no surprise that it's been relatively easy to get that, that level of improvement. Um, the, the other thing I was going to say is that we're, we're about to hit period where we're, we're starting the level seven master's level degree apprenticeships and if you look at the populations of people available who might have the skill sets to do those degrees then um, then I, I kind of really really hope that there will be lots of women on those degrees too that they will be able to recruit really well. Um, I think I think there's a, a couple of reasons driving um, that. So I think given that the push around uh, particularly digital and technology apprentices is fairly recent, I think the language is quite different. Mm. Um, and I think the way apprenticeships are marketed are maybe slightly more inclusive than the traditional computer science pathways. But also employers are really driving it. So we run a level four apprenticeship. Um, and our, a lot of our employers see apprenticeships as the route to diversify their businesses. Um, and, they, and so, you know, they're, they're very keen to attract women into those roles. Um, and so we have employers who still go to do the Russell Group, computer science grads. They nearly, it's nearly all men that get taken on. And so actually there are quite a lot of employers now who will try and only employ women from apprenticeships, etc., because... They really, really want to try and balance their workforces. So I think a lot of it comes from them. I'd add that I, there's a lot of employers beginning to think about it when we say apprenticeship, it is a route into diversity, but they are thinking of young women, but they're not just thinking of young women, but they're looking at people who are thinking of transitioning, returning to the workforce. So we're talking the full age range 
um, because we want young apprentices, but actually there's a lot of women who never thought of or who dropped out of the tech industry. And so things like um, apprenticeships or returnships um, are another way in which I think a lot of employers are thinking differently and women are thinking differently. I think our average age in our apprenticeship is actually about 24. Yeah. I think as well, a big thing is the retention rate of an apprentice is a lot higher in Great. comparison to a graduate as well. So from an employer point of view, you do tend to want to invest a lot more into that as well. Because um, you do tend to more low because they grow you, give you a career path to work towards as well. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. Okay. So I think uh, we could talk for longer and we should. Uh, this is an important issue and um, it is going to be something that is going to take um, all of us working together, the uh, you know, industry and, um, and education. And I think the Institute of Coding is, is, the, is the forum, is the, is the organisation that can, can, bring, can uh, take this forward. Uh, there will be obviously an opportunity to ask further questions and continue the discussion um, outside. But at this point, I think I would just like to thank all our, our speakers. I have your speakers.